honestly. <laughs> we were told to behave as well. <laughs> so, as she says, we've been studying the I Am series, and uh, my privilege today is to speak about Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Now, he says this in two places that we're going to pick up this morning. Uh, John 8 and verse 12 said, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's picked up again in the following chapter in verse 5. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So the whole of those two chapters form the basis for our sermon, and I would encourage you to read them at home because we're not going to read all of it today, but I would encourage you to get a feel for this uh, um, phrase. But at the start of John's Gospel, way back in chapter 1, right at the very outset, he lays out some of his major themes, and one of those is about light. So let's have a look first at what it says there. So John 1 verse 9 says, The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So that's the background for our talk today, and I particularly want to pick up on the variety of responses that can be made to Jesus being the light of the world. I wonder what you understand by that phrase, and uh, I wonder, too, how we respond to it. And how did the people in his time respond to it? I don't know what your reactions generally to light are. If you're one of those people who doesn't like getting up in the morning, perhaps the light comes as a horrible shock. But uh, G and I particularly like light, airy rooms. But we've found recently that our family seem to want even more light than we do. And they want the the lights on much earlier than we do. Um, Perhaps it's that we're too mean to pay the bills. I don't know. (laughs) But lights are used in so many parts of our everyday lives, aren't they? And we love to see the light. It makes us feel light and better. I love to see the light of the sun in the room, but I also become aware of the need to clean the windows and to hoover. So that same good light often can bring a negative with what it shows up. And uh, perhaps that's true as we go through the story today. So when Jesus said, I am the light of the world... What were the reactions of the people around him? Well, let me just take you to the place where he said it. Jesus was actually in the courts of the temple, and he was uh, speaking to the people. And it was at the time of the Jewish festival, the Feast of Tabernacles. And there they were uh, remembering the time when God had led them through the wilderness. And uh, there was a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night. And imagine, if you will, what happened in the temple at that time where there were four golden lamps which were lit. And so Jesus is taking what is there right in front of people's eyes. And he's saying, you know, looking at this wonderful light. Now, the light from the temple would have shone out to the whole of the city. But here we have Jesus saying, I I am the light of the world. 
Just imagine that intake of breath as he says it. It's a case of here he is saying that he is not just a light, he's not the light. And he's not just the light of the temple or even of Jerusalem, but he's the light of the whole world. Now, from our distance in culture and time, it's perhaps easy to miss how provocative that statement is from Jesus. He's actually quite an outrageous claim that he's making. It's a very a definite uh, stand against the people and the system that he was standing amongst. And uh, we find that there are various responses to this statement The first one is from the Pharisees, and much of chapter 8 is taken up with a debate between Jesus and the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees liked to debate, and they were respected people. They knew their scriptures, they studied the laws, and they had a great knowledge of the law of Moses and also the other laws that had been introduced to help people live according to the law. In those scriptures, it spoke about a Messiah who would come from God and would set the people free. And so the people were looking constantly for that Messiah. They were looking for signs of what would happen. At the point we get to in our story here, the Pharisees are actually working and acting on behalf of the whole Sanhedrin, the whole of the Jewish authorities. There were 70 Jewish leaders who would meet together and make pronouncements. They would judge what they saw on the religious scene. Now, this Sanhedrin had heard of Jesus. They'd heard about him. And the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Luke, uh, they tend to feature largely Jesus in Galilee. And we know from the stories we read there that he was very popular. There were crowds of people that would follow him. There would be miracles that would be, take place. Now, not surprisingly, the Sanhedrin had heard of Jesus and had sent people to investigate what was going on. Who was this person? What was it they were saying about him being perhaps the Messiah? So the Sanhedrin had sent their representatives down and they'd had the reports back. And they had had to make an assessment of Jesus' claims and their assessment was that Jesus was a false Messiah. Jesus was, in fact, a threat to their whole system. So the Pharisees, as they come into this situation, have already made up their minds about Jesus. Now they seek to accuse him, perhaps to trip him up, and basically to get rid of him. It certainly was a heated discussion. So when Jesus said that he was the light of the world, it's very much a, a point in here that he's causing a friction. So that's what John meant in his opening chapter when he said that Jesus came to his own was the Jewish people and they didn't receive him. Their leaders had made this pronouncement, this judgment on him. So the very people who through their study of the scriptures should have been able to recognize Jesus as the Messiah weren't able to. Now apparently it was Matthew Henry who wrote commentaries on the Bible who phrased this, there's none so blind as those who will not see. And from time to time, we meet people in our life who prejudge Jesus, prejudge the church, prejudge God. They don't want to know. They don't recognize him as Lord 
even if they have all the evidence in front of them. It is possible to know an awful lot about Scripture and the Bible and still not believe in Jesus. But take heart. After all, Nicodemus was a Pharisee, and he came to Jesus privately to talk with him. And there were others uh, in chapter 8. You'll read of others, other Jews who at the time uh, believed in Jesus. So there have been those who have set out to prove Jesus wrong and have come to faith. But in this case, the Pharisees were very entrenched in their opinion. In his discussion in chapter 8, Jesus makes it clear that coming as the light of the world, he came to bring freedom and truth to anyone who would accept him. But also, that same light would involve judgment and death for those who don't accept him. So, as I say, I would encourage you to read chapter 8 as a background, but we're going on to look in chapter 9, and we're going to read a story of a a miracle, and uh, we're going to see the responses then to Jesus as the light of the world. So let's start by reading John 9, verses 1 to 12. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents, that he was born blind. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground and made some mud with the saliva and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which which means sent. So the man went and washed, and he came home seeing. His neighbors and those who'd formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed that I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Now, it's very important to note that restoring sight to the blind was something only the true Messiah could do. In Isaiah chapter 29, which talks about the coming of, that, of the Messiah. In that day, the deaf will hear the words of the scroll, and out of the gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. This healing was absolute proof, if you like, that Jesus is the Messiah, and uh, very much spoke into that controversy that was going on around him. So one of the responses I want to take a moment to think about is those people who were with Jesus, and that's were his disciples. They open that, that question as whose sin is it um, that is responsible for this person's suffering? Now, this was um, a widely, widely held view in those days that sin and suffering were linked together. And they were wondering who was to blame. Now, we live in a blame culture, It's very prevalent today, isn't it? Where nothing would seem to be a simple accident, but someone somewhere must be responsible. 
But instead of answering the question about blame, Jesus actually says about the purpose of this person's suffering. And the purpose was to show God's work. Suffering, wherever we meet it, is an opportunity for God to actually bless and to come in and to speak to people. It's an opportunity for God's mercy and God's grace to be shown. So Jesus explained he must do what God wanted him to do while he was still in the world. He needed to be the light of the world. So by healing this man, his life would be transformed, not just physically, but spiritually. But in verse 4, Jesus used the plural, as long as it's day, we must do the works of him who sent me. So we know from the uh, New Testament and other historians that those who were with him at that time actually did continue his work afterwards. We read about it in the Acts of the Apostles and in the other letters. But also, in Matthew 5 and verse 16, in a sermon Jesus gave to those who were generally following him, we read that we, that is you and I, his disciples today, are the light of the world. And we're told, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So in chapter 8, Jesus explained to the Pharisees in the discourse that he'd not come on his own, but he'd been sent by God the Father and that what he did was in obedience to God and was to bring honor to God. And in just the same way as his disciples now, We are to do God's work, to his glory, and not our own. It's very tempting to judge people and situations by our own standards or our own thoughts and opinions. But instead of judging situations, instead of judging needs and circumstances and apportioning blame, we need to be showing God's mercy. I've been reading a book by Andy McCullough, called Global Humility Attitudes for Mission, which I found very interesting but also challenging. And in it, he explains that the blind man in our encounter, the crippled man spoken about in John 5, and also the Samaritan woman of John 4, none of them would have been welcome in the temple at that time. But what happens? Jesus goes to them. And as his disciples, we shouldn't expect everyone to come to church, but we should find ways of reaching out to them where they are. Martin Charlesworth from our church here wrote the book, The Undeserving Poor, in which he challenges us to stop judging people and using our human judgments, much like Jesus accused the Pharisees. And that's why as a church we have the 360 projects that we prayed about this morning. And the truth is that wherever we go as his disciples, we carry Jesus into all situations and to all the people that we meet. Andrew McCullough goes on to say, there are many in your town who can never come to your church. The geographic, linguistic, cultural barriers are too many. You may think your church is accessible because it has a good website and a wheelchair ramp. But what about the emotional and cultural accessibility? Instead, you must go out to them. Jesus reached out to the marginalized in society, and we need to do the same. 
So let's go on to those people who were around at the time of the miracle. We read about the neighbors. Neighbors are interesting people, I've found. They ask uh, questions, they take note of things. If you remember from the sermon before, I said we were in the process of building or we're about to build an extension. Well, as the extension's gone up, so the neighbors have taken quite an interest. Some of them have asked questions and make comments, and I've invited them in. I said, well, well, you must come in and see it. Now, I should be very interested to see how many of them actually take me up on the offer, but the, the offer is there. And sadly, they're very much like the neighbors in this story who are standing on the sidelines. And uh, they, you know, they're not actually taking part here. So they've repeated, they've asked him questions, which really confirms that this miracle took place. It not only took place, but there were witnesses of what happened, and they were the neighbors. But these neighbors stand on the edge, and they don't get involved. And sad to say, that's still true for many people today. They look in at the Christian faith, they look in on us as Christians, and they don't come along, they don't take their stand with us. So what did the neighbors do? They did what was natural to them, they took them to the Pharisees. And they took him because something wonderful had happened here, and they wanted the Pharisees to make a judgment on it. And so we'll look at the man's response shortly. But let's first of all turn to the parents, which I think is one of the saddest responses, uh, in my opinion. So John 9, verses 18 to 23. They, that's the Pharisees, still did not believe that he'd been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? We know he is our son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. Now, why? uh, Sorry, his parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who'd already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said, He's of age. Ask him. Imagine how those parents would have felt when their son was born blind. Their son was never going to be able to take a part in life, a full part in life, particularly in those days. Now, thankfully, we're living in days when people, even if they are born blind, are actually able to live a very full life and work. But this man was never going to be able to work He was never going to be able to support his parents. So it must have been a terrible disappointment to them. But then again, think, what happens now when they see their son seeing? It must have been marvelous for them. They could be the son they'd always wanted. But when they're questioned by the Pharisees, they're happy to confirm he was their son. They're happy to confirm he'd been born blind and also that he'd been healed. But they ducked out of the question the Pharisees put to them about who'd performed the healing because they were afraid of being put out of the temple. This is very understandable. The temple wasn't just a place for worship, like the church here. It was so much more than that. The temple was their society, were their friends, were the people they mixed with. (coughs) 
Kisnids. The whole of their life would have been tied to the temple. And here they had their leaders who were saying very definitely that if you say it's Christ or Jesus, then you're saying you're out of the temple. They had a very good reason for not coming through for Jesus. They would have been cut off from their society, from their friends, their, perhaps their family, and they would have been in disgrace and ostracized. They weren't able to take that step of faith. And we meet people today, even in our country, who fear losing too much when they accept Jesus. There are people who uh, will be put out of their family for declaring their faith. But there are also those who fear lacking their standing in society or perhaps losing their friendship bases. We need to pray for them to have courage to stand up for what they believe in and seek to support those who do uh, take that step, even knowing how much it will cost them. I was very grateful for Josh when he was talking about Jesus being the good shepherd and uh, from his experience as a shepherd farmer, he knew um, that when sheep were um, belonging to a shepherd, he would nick the ears. And I was glad that Josh mentioned about the cost to that sheep. It would hurt. If it's small, not very much. But you know, it was just a sense of belonging. I, very often we forget what it does cost some people to actually become a Christian. But when you see the nick in the ear as to compare to belonging for eternity and for us, the great riches that we have, then we know that that is not a comparison. But their fear, the parents' fear, was shown to be real. The Pharisees did, in fact, put the man out of the temple later. So we need to be praying for these people who find it too difficult to make that step. So let's now turn to the man himself. Excuse me, I need a drink. (laughs) As we said, he was unable to see. He was unable to support himself. He was totally dependent on the goodwill of the others as he sat begging. And Jesus must have talked through what he was doing because he knew afterwards what had been done. And of course, he couldn't see. And Jesus made some mud by spitting on the ground, and he put it on the man's eyes. Now, in those days, spittle was a common remedy for healing, but I don't think it was a remedy for healing blind blind people. And you notice the healing isn't instantaneous, as it could be with Jesus. The man was sent by Jesus to wash himself in the pool of Siloam. That was some distance from the temple. What if he hadn't gone? I expect he wouldn't have seen. That reminds me of the story in the Old Testament about Naaman, who was sent to wash in the River Jordan, but he had to be persuaded to do it because he thought it was beneath him. But the man born blind went and washed. Well, you might say, well, of course he did. He'd try anything to be able to see. But it does show that even at that stage in his walk, in his life, he was prepared to act on what Jesus said. He was a form of trust, a very small step of trust here. He doesn't know much about Jesus at this point, and he says that the man they call Jesus. He doesn't actually refer to him as Jesus in the first person. And he tells his neighbors he doesn't even know where Jesus has gone after this event. So this little step of trust is, if you like, a very small step into his journey of faith. 
<coughs> the next meeting we read is between him and the Pharisees. And he repeats his story because they are investigating. And despite them, he says, that, um, sorry, despite them saying that Jesus is a sinner and so therefore can't have done it, he's prepared to claim Jesus as a prophet. So he's beginning to realize the significance of the miracle, not just for himself, but for others. And so he's called back to the Pharisees again, and they ask him the same questions. So what did Jesus do and how did he do it? Well, at this point, not surprisingly, the man gets a little bit exasperated. You're asking me again. And then he's perhaps a bit too cheeky by goading them and asking them if they want to be Jesus' followers themselves. This is not the best way to go about being the, the, um, with the Pharisees. But, you know, he goes from that simple bit of trust to thinking Jesus is a prophet. And then we read a bit further here. John um, chapter 9, verses 28 to 34. Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from, which was important for Messiah. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Well, nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. So we see that another step has gone for here, for that man. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Now, his witness, his testimony is, I know that he did something for me. And so, therefore, I know this man has been sent from God. He's taken another step from that trust to belief that Jesus has come from God. And I love the fact that on finding out that the man had been thrown out of the temple, Jesus went to find him. And Jesus explained to him, about himself as Messiah. The son of man, he uses that phrase, as another name for Messiah. To which the man responds, I believe. So at this point, not only has he been healed of his, spiritual, his physical blindness, but also his spiritual blindness. <coughs> That's open for us as well. Remember back in John 1? Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's still true today. The man needed to take several steps of faith, but he came to the point of belief in Jesus as Messiah. Now, Andy, I'm going to embarrass you, but I'm going to refer to your testimony. Um, a month ago, Andy was baptized, and he took time to come to faith. He needed to research it. He needed to grow to understand what it was more about. And then at Easter time, he made a commitment and then to follow Jesus. That was a gradual step for Andy and for many of us. And I would encourage you, if you are on that journey of faith, keep going. Take the next step and the next step. Um, just keep going with that. And so the challenge for all of us is, how do we respond 
to Jesus as the light of the world. Sadly, the account in John ends with Jesus pointing out that the Pharisees, because they were so steeped in what they thought was right, were in fact spiritually blind and guilty of their sin. Now, the light had shown up, that darkness. And we need to realize, we need to be really sure that despite all our knowledge, despite all the things that we know about Christ, it's possible to know those things without committing to him. We don't want to be like the Pharisees and to miss out on God's, all that God has for us. We want to be like his disciples. We want to need to see the eye, with the eyes of the desperate condition of all those who are around us without blame. We want to be the light of the world as we take Jesus out. I hope we're not going to be like the neighbors who stood on the outside just looking on, nor like the man's parents who missed out because they weren't strong enough to, take, to leave their comfort zone. But I want to encourage you to pray for people if you know those people like that. Pray for them because there are examples of people coming through to faith. Um, one of the people who perhaps could be seen like that, I've had inside knowledge from Devoted about a man called Gary that I have met. And he has been going to church quite often. He's been standing on the sidelines. But like yesterday or the day before, he took those final steps into faith. So it does happen. So keep praying. And we know of those people, even like Pharisees, who are dead set against Jesus, who when they set out to uh, stand up against him, they do become uh, Christians. After all, there was Saul who became Paul. So let's not leave people standing where they are. Let's pray for them. And I really pray that we will be like the man and take those steps of faith and move on in our journey and respond to the light of the world who wants to give us all the benefits that come from believing in him. Let's just take a minute or two to reflect on what is my response to Jesus as the light of the world? Jesus, we thank you for the light that you have shined into our lives. We pray that if there are any here this morning who are standing on the outside, maybe even have set their minds against you, people who are not strong enough to perhaps move away from their comfort zones, that, Lord, you will bring your light into their life and you will show them all that they can have in you and that you will give them the strength to take those steps forward. And for all of us, Father, we pray that we will be your disciples, taking your light out into all the people that we meet in every situation. And we pray it in the wonderful name of Jesus, who gives us power to be what he wants us to be. Amen. Thank you, Rich. Should we stand?